Well, we are in Hebrews chapter 6 today. Be a good passage to be in. It's verses 9 through 20. I want to encourage you to turn there as we look at this passage from the Lord. Let's stand. Let's remember that it is from, from the Lord to us. It is his inspired and inerrant word. Hebrews 6 verses 9 through 20. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And we have this as a sure and a steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that we would not get lost in the words of this longer thought by uh, your word, Lord, but instead we would settle down, that we would focus and, and hear, that our ears and our eyes might not grow sluggish, but in fact that we would be uh, earnestly seeking after this hope that we find in your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were here with us last week, we read the sobering reminder in those first eight verses of chapter 6 that it's, that it's possible to be influenced by God's work, to witness his miraculous deeds, to even to initially respond to what seems like Christian ways, professing to be believers and yet ultimately not be changed. I hope that was a sobering look at those first eight verses. The writer of Hebrews hopes that it obviously won't happen. And that is why we see his repeated warnings so far throughout the book. If the Hebrews do neglect God's great salvation, the result is that they will have crucified, the author says, to themselves, the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. We don't want that. And Hebrews 10.29, which we haven't read yet, says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy? who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. So these are hard and sober warnings repeatedly throughout the chapters as we've read them and the chapters yet to come. And as we move into today's passage, it is clear that having given strong warnings, the author doesn't want to discourage those who truly are of God. Not only that, but he compassionately says in verse 9, though we speak this way, with all the warnings, 
Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And I encouraged you last week to look into your life for these things that belong to salvation, these signs of salvation. Are you becoming more like Christ? Are you becoming more obedient? Are you walking in righteousness? Are you able to instruct and encourage others? Are you mentoring them in their walk? If so, then, then that is some of the evidence that we've seen so far, that you have moved from milk to the solid food of God's Word and kingdom. And in today's passage, we learn of one more thing that belongs to salvation, as well as some significant promises of God. Verse 9 is the only place in this letter where we see the word beloved. It is here that we realize that the stern warnings of the first six chapters are not just angry words, they're not just critical or chiding words, but they are rather words spoken from someone who loves the people of God. They're words that are hard things that we have to say sometimes to, to wake one another up, to edify one another, to, to strive to the higher goal. Even Jesus had to say hard things to the ones that he loved. In John 6, for example, when we see that many leave Jesus after, calling, after he called himself the bread of life, he then turned to the twelve and, and he said, do you wish to leave me also? And that must have been hard for the disciples to hear. But sometimes we need to hear those strong words of caution as a, as a wake-up, as a warning. Because it's easy to grow complacent. Or in the words of today's passage, it's easy to become sluggish. Get caught up in our doubts. Become entrenched in our sins. The Lord says to us, are you truly following me? Are you truly following me? Do you wish to leave the narrow path? It's a question we need to ask ourselves regularly. Even as Paul says, examine yourselves to see that you are in the faith, that Christ is in you. And so we ask, is Christ in me? Is Christ in you? And don't answer that with a quick yes until we look at the rest of this chapter and see what other sign of salvation there is to be in our life. Verse 10 says, For God's not unjust so as to overlook your work and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Now as you read that, you go, God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and love. And maybe that's one of those types of passages where we go that's suggesting that God is rewarding us for our works. It's not that he's rewarding us for our works for the perspective of salvation. What this means here in, right in this verse is that when you serve others for and in God's name, it becomes for the Lord a matter of righteousness and justice to acknowledge your service. Why? Because as God, he is rightly committed above everything else to his name, to his righteousness, and to his ways. And so when God loves and honors his name, Above all else, and if, if he were to love anything else more, that would be idolatry even for God, right? God loves his name more than anything else. And so when we love his name, when we labor in a way that honors 
his name. He doesn't overlook that because his name is being honored and it's being exalted. And notice what that labor for his name is. It is service of the saints. Now, there are three important aspects to serving the saints. I want you to get these today. First, service is done out of love for, did you see what it was? For God's name. All good things are motivated first out of a love for God. As Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, 37, the first greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it's out of that that flows everything that is practical application of the second commandment, which is to love our neighbor as ourselves. If you have trouble, and this is, this is really kind of the, what this means, if you have trouble serving or desiring to serve the saints, the issue is not so much that the saints are difficult to love but rather that you need to grow in your love for God. To love God's name is to love everything that he represents and to desire that his reputation would grow. It is to be passionate about his glory more than anything else, more than our own, more than our comfort, more than our interests. Interestingly, before the Apostle Peter was commissioned to make disciples and grow the church, Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? Now, I understand that part of asking Peter that question for three times was an opportunity to rehabilitate himself after having denied Jesus three times, right? There is that element of it. But the point is that after Peter had confirmed that he did indeed love Jesus, Jesus then says, therefore, or as a result of this confession and confirmation, because you love me, go feed my sheep. And the saints are Christ's sheep. And when you serve them, you recognize that they belong to the master, to your king, and he has called you to build his kingdom and not your own. A second Related aspect to serving the saints is that when we love others, we love God. Now, that's subtly different from the first point. Remember, the first point is that we love others, or we, that the first aspect of service is that in loving others, we love God. Now, I, see, I knew I would get that messed up too because it's so close to one another. The first aspect is that we love others because we love God. That's the first one. And the second one is that in loving others, we love God. That's illustrated, for example, in Matthew 25, Jesus' comment where he says that the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed, who are blessed by the Father, inherit the kingdom that's prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And what do they say? What do they say when Jesus says, when I was hungry, You gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, I was a stranger, you welcomed me, I was naked, you clothed me, I was sick and you visited me, I was in prison, you came to me. It says the righteous will say, "What? when do we do those things? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. And so when we serve the saints, we are serving God. Does that make sense? So we serve because we love God 
and his name and desire his reputation and kingdom to grow. And as we serve, we demonstrate our love for God, even as we love others. And a third aspect of our service is that it is work. That's a word that's important for us not to miss in this passage. It's work. It's a labor. And it's a work not only that we have done in the past, but as the author says in verse 10, it is a work that we still do. In other words, it is a habit. It's a custom. It is part of being a Christian. And so it's helpful to understand those things when we struggle with loving and serving others. When something is work, it means that it's something that requires effort and consistency and diligence. There are a lot of people who treat serving others as something they do when they feel like it. If they don't feel like it, they don't serve. But when we work, you all know, you have personal experience. When you work, you work even when you don't feel like working. At least most of you do. And Paul writes these words in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And so Paul wouldn't be saying that if there wasn't the tendency to grow weary, if there wasn't the difficulty in, in continuing to maintain this habit. And so he, he, he speaks of the future reward and that motivation for continuing to go and to serve the saints and to not give up. And, you know, that's how the Hebrews started. They started well. In chapter 10, we're going to learn, in fact, I'll read to you the description. It says, but recall the former days. Recall those former days in which after you were illuminated, meaning after, after you'd heard the gospel, you, you endured great struggle with, with suffering even. Partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproach and tribulation, so partly by the persecution you specifically, individually suffered, and partly while you became a companion of those who were so treated, while you served those saints who were facing that persecution directly. For you even had compassion on me in my chains, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. They had started so well, but they'd grown weary. And they'd grown troubled and doubtful and anxious. So what are these first few verses saying? Out of your love for God and for his name, you will persevere in serving the saints. You won't just serve on Monday because you spontaneously feel like it and then not serve on Tuesday through Saturday. You won't just serve because you are wanting to be charitable or feeling sympathetic to someone's situation. You will serve because you love God, you love his name, and as a result, God has said, he will not overlook your work. He'll take note, and he'll remember. And so the next verses, 11 through 12, say, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not become sluggish, but will imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises the author says, don't get lazy. Commentator Richard Phillips wrote, we live in a world that is perilous to faith in Christ. I think we see that very evidently today. 
We live in a world that is perilous to faith in Christ. Therefore, while we know that true believers, they're kept safe by God's power, yet the Christian life takes place within the context of this danger. And while the New Testament speaks of assurance, this is why it never allows for complacency. You have to stay diligent. You have to stay earnest. And I think it's a good point that the Bible assures us of our salvation because he who began a good work in us is faithful to complete it. We know that. We know that God is the author and perfecter of our salvation. But it also clearly says that we must move forward. We must fight. We must strive. We must not grow weary. Dave said it well today. We need to keep going with this attitude from the verse that he quoted, that we are taking heaven by storm. That was, that was what one of the Puritans wrote as a title for a book, taking heaven by storm. And I like that. Uh, imagery that heaven and the kingdom of God is so important to us, so vital that the word sluggish, lazy, has no place in our vocabulary from a practical perspective, right? The only way is forward. The only way is up. And so that's why the author's saying you should be seeing these signs, these, these signs of striving, of earnestness, of diligence, of greater service for the saints. John says in 1 John 2, 3, By this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. So, again, walking in faith, serving the saints, not becoming lazy. And I like the phrase in verse 11, the full assurance of hope. What is that? When we hope for something, we desire that that, whatever that is, that something will be true in the future. I hope I will be healthy next year at this time. I hope that the last of my children will find godly spouses and develop loving families. What kind of hope do you think the author is talking about in chapter 6? Would it not be the thing that has been occupying his focus to this point in this book, which is the rest the hope of entering the rest of God of living eternally with the Lord and what would give us assurance of that hope well I don't have any assurance for example that I'll be healthy next year at this time because for one it depends upon God's will and I don't know what circumstances he will bring into my life I don't even know if I'll be alive tomorrow but there are many contingencies also that lead to my being healthy. I'll need to work hard to eat well. Some of you are less confident about that one. To continue to exercise. Maybe you're confident of that one. To not contract some form of disease and many more things. Well, what, what are the contingencies of you entering God's rest? You might be tempted to say, well... Isn't it that we endure to the end? But what the author has been saying so far is that this is not the cause of our rest in God, but the evidence of our rest. It's the effect of our rest. Otherwise, we would be advocating a works righteousness salvation. No, the contingency is God's faithfulness, not ours. And that's why we have verses 13 through 20. I hope that makes sense. The author says to you, I want you to have the full assurance of hope until the end. 
And he's saying, friends, it's not based upon what you do that's going to give you that assurance of hope. You're not in control of all the contingencies that are going to lead to you actually entering into the kingdom of heaven. I've laid out some evidences and signs that should make you worried if you're not seeing them in your life. But at the end of the day, this, what he's about to say, this is what gives you assurance. This is what gives you an anchor for your soul. And look at it again. These are great verses. God made a promise to Abraham. He had no one greater by whom to swear, and so he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And we see the rest of those verses through chapter 20. And you might say, why is the author taking us back to the book of Genesis? Why is he taking us to Genesis 12 and 15 and 22 and 17 of that book, where God makes a promise to Abraham multiple times talking about what he's going to do for Abraham? I'm going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to make a people out of you. In fact, I'm going to change your name. And your, your name's not just going to be Abram. It's going to be Abraham, which means the father of many people. And he doesn't even have a child at this point yet, right? And so the author reminds us, Abraham obtained that promise. As amazing as it was to an older man who had no children, who's called out of the land of Ur, of the Chaldees, into a land that did not belong to him, and he's told by God, I'm going to make a people out of you. The author of Hebrews is saying, you guys are generations past that. You know what happened. God kept his promise. He kept his covenant with Abraham, and that's an assurance to you that he'll keep his promise to you. Every one of you, since you came into this building, has been exercising faith. I've been watching you. You've been trusting in the work of another person. I watched carefully because I was thinking about it today, and I didn't see any of you crawling under the pews to check the stability of, of the seats. You weren't checking the legs on the ends, and you took it by faith, and you exercised trust in the maker of those pews and your past experience, didn't you? Though you don't have the, any the least idea of, the, of who the maker of that chair is. Whether he or she was trustworthy, you simply took it for granted. You've been exercising faith all along. And remarkably, you have not been at all worried that the pew would suddenly collapse underneath you today. And at its heart, faith and assurance of hope are based upon trusting in the work of another. Trusting in the work of another. And when it comes to your salvation, the one in whom you place your hope The work of the other is the God of Abraham, the one who has always been true to his covenants, the one who loved you enough that he sent his son. Second, we read that God guaranteed that promise. So this is a promise to start with. That should have been enough, right? This is the thrice holy God, the one in whom there is no deception, no turning, no shadow of turning even. But he is the father of lights. He is truth itself incarnate. Love. Made a promise. That should have been enough. But he actually guarantees that promise with an oath. Where does that happen? Listen to Genesis 22.15. It says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
Blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They rose, went together to Beersheba and Abraham dwelt there. Now, as we think about that incident in Genesis 22, it's that story in which God tests Abraham and asks him to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham, of course, obeys. God stops the sacrifice in midstream, tells Abraham as a result that he will bless him, but he swears by himself. And the important question that flows out of Genesis 22, that flows out of Hebrews 6, is this one. Why does God swear? Why does God take an oath? We lie. We do all kinds of things that make oaths sometimes necessary. But God, like I said, who is perfectly trustworthy and doesn't lie, why does he take an oath? Because Abraham's faith was weak. That's why he takes an oath. There would come times when he was tempted, when his descendants would be tempted to wonder if God would truly keep his promise. And all they would need to remember is God swore by that which he could not have found anything higher. He swore by himself. Verse 16 reiterates, it says that people swear by something greater than themselves. We see that happen when a president puts his hand on the Bible and takes office and takes an oath. Even in ancient times, people swore upon things like God or the throne of God or by heaven. Something that was greater than themselves. Well, God swears by the greatest thing that there is by himself. And he does so, verse 17 says, because, and the Greek is translated into English, he determined... But the, but the root meaning of that word is, is actually better maybe translated into a few words, meaning he strongly desired. So he swore by himself because he strongly desired to prove that his promise could be trusted. Look at verse 18. God confirmed by two immutable things or unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. So that, you see where I said it, because Abraham's weak, faith was weak? What does it say? So that we might have strong consolation. That's why he did it. And when, those, when he's talking about two immutable or unchangeable things, he's referring to God's promise and God's oath. It's impossible for God to lie out of the result of either one of those. And what is that promise? It's the promise that we have what the author calls an anchor for our soul. That we have an ability to flee for refuge and enter the presence behind the veil. So let me see if I can make these statements make sense. Here we have the readers of Hebrews that have been facing strong persecution. Some have been leaving the faith. Some are weak in their faith. But many had shown love to the saints in the past. 
had seemed to evidence a true belief. Even so, they were getting weary. Some were actually beginning to wonder where God was and why he was not delivering them. And the author wants them to stop drifting. Remember that illustration from at the very beginning that uh, lest you drift away, kind of that nautical uh, usage and vocabulary in the early chapters. Well, now he uses it again. I'm giving you an anchor this is so that the ship of your soul doesn't drift away in the, in the face of doubt and anxiety and all the things that you face. Here's the anchor. The anchor is, first, that you are able to flee for refuge to God. That you are able to stand behind the veil in the presence of God. And you probably know what that imagery is referring to, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the Holy of Holies. And there was this veil, that thick curtain that separated the people, all the people, from a holy God. But when Christ dies on the cross and atones for sin... And he says, it is finished. And at that moment, the veil is said to have been split in two. That, that separation of God from the people is removed. And through Jesus, we are able to come behind the veil and into the presence of God. Now keep following me. The author is telling the readers, Jesus has gone through that veil. He's entered into the presence of God, the Father. And as your high priest, he has made a way for you to enter through his own sacrifice of himself. And that is where you now stand if you are his child. That is your refuge. That is your anchor. You're anchored there. And you need to hold firm to that reality. And the assurance of hope that you will one day see the reality of what is already true. Now, isn't that amazing? That's already true. That's why we have to live by faith and not by sight. We don't fully understand or grasp the, the, the full thrust of that truth that we stand even now in the presence behind the veil. And so the author saying, believe God, he said it was so. He told you what he was going to do. He told you what the result of this was. And he told you what the reality is. You have a high priest. You have a mediator who even now is interceding on your behalf before the Father. You are firmly anchored there. So do not waver. Don't drift. Stand firm. God has always kept his promises and can be trusted. These these last several verses may be summarized well in the hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, because the lyrics read, His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood, right? When all my round my soul gives way, like it wants to be moved, He then is all my hope and my stay or anchor. That's what you need to be singing when you find yourself in the midst of difficulty and doubt. And so as we end this first major part of Hebrews, this chapters 1 through 8, I say chapter 8 because we've already covered chapter 7 and, and much of chapter 8 when we looked at Melchizedek. So as we end this first major part of Hebrews, 
Our only wise option is what? It's to rest from our anxieties. Rest from our fears. Rest even from our own works. And instead rest on the one who has promised to be our source of help. You see, the blessing of resting in God is that God declares peace against you. We can't have that nonchalant image of God sitting by patiently and saying, oh well, as as soon as Steve develops the faith, I'll come running to him. Until we rest in God, he is at war with us. That is why we saw in the early chapters the uh, example of the Israelites who had left in the Exodus in the first generation dying in the desert. There came a point in time when God's long-suffering came to an end. But when God declares peace with us and we begin to stand in grace before his throne and are standing there in the presence behind the veil, we can have a confidence that now his gaze is not directed towards us as a conqueror, as a mighty warrior that's pictured in the scriptures, the, the God of vengeance and the God of holy anger and wrath, right? He is instead in his gaze becomes a savior and a helper who knows our weaknesses. And our soul then is firmly anchored. We can't even fully understand what this meant for the readers at that time because we've really moved away from ships as as being such a central focal point of life in business and trade and travel and more. Uh, we have grown comfortable in our modes of transportation, but even in, in when we are on boats, they're so firmly secure, right? Back then in the ancient world, an anchor was, was the tool instrument of security. If the wind started blowing hard or a storm came up that was an angry storm, the anchor was, was the one thing that kept the ship there. And what I like is this imagery in Hebrews that God, instead of, of giving us an anchor that anchors us, that goes down into the depths right, of the water and just puts us in place, this imagery of this anchor that's gone up through the heavens and it's just boom, right there on the throne of God. And it's, you know, that, that corner of the anchor is just right there on the, in the presence behind the veil. And it is firmly anchored there. That's where your soul is. Remember what Jesus promised the disciples in John 14, 3. I go and prepare a place for you. I will come again and I will take you to myself. The anchor's there. I will come and get you. Remember the climactic statement of Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us with confidence, not with hesitation, not with reluctance, but with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Because the anchor of our soul is there already at the throne, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. And then let me end with this passage, which we haven't reached yet. It's from chapter 10. Verse 35, therefore do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, 
for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, they just have to endure a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry, and the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. It's like the author is, you know, he's laid out all the, he's laid out all the cards. And in chapter 10, he says, but we, you know, up until that point, he's been writing to the people, Right? But then he, he, in solidarity with them, he says, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Does that describe you? Are you a part of the we of that statement? Will you draw back? The answer is no. <laughs> I'm going to take heaven by storm, right? Will you Waver, will you drift? No, my soul is anchored on the very throne of grace. Will you be consumed by anxiety and doubt over what God has planned for you? No, because God has been faithful, not only to Abraham, but to everyone else that has come after Abraham through Jesus, through the disciples, through the yearly church, through to today, God has always been faithful to his promises and even swore by himself to uphold those promises. That is what we come out of, of today's passage. May the Lord bless us with that kind of confidence and surety. Let's pray. Father, we are an unworthy people. You've called us out of sinful lives in which we were in rebellion against you. You called us to not only faithfulness, but you have called us then to love one another, to serve one another, to strive for your name, even in the face of persecution and oppression, to walk a narrow, agonizing path. But Lord, all the while, you continue to remind us about what lies ahead of us and what already is true. You are for us. You are with us. And so, Lord, we thank you for those things. We ask that you would be with us even now as we go to your table anticipate eating this meal as a reminder of what you have done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.